Hey guys, welcome to On the Front Porch with us. My name is Josh Whitehead. This is your weekly Disney podcast. Tony is out this week for surgery, so send him all your best love. We'll get to how you can do that at the end of the episode. But for this week, I am joined by my good friend Beardy. For those of you that are listeners of the show, he has been a silent listener in some of our episodes in the past, and I'm really glad to have him on the show, and hopefully you'll be excited too, because you'll actually get to hear him talk. But we're watching Big Hero 6, so that's really exciting, and I'm really excited about it. But first, Beardy, hello, welcome to the show. Thank you for having me. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Well, I work with computers for a living. I love Marvel. I love video games. I like reading, writing, all the fun stuff. Okay. And you were, just to clarify, you were part of the Disney Movie Club, both the original and the NCSU version, right? Correct. Okay. And you went to the School of Math and Science with Tony and Cameron as well. Yeah. So you got to be there at the original founding, which is really exciting. So, again, we're really excited to have you on. But as with all of our guests, we like to do this rapid-fire question thing. Do you you think you can handle it? Uh, well, we'll see. Okay, so I got a couple of questions here, and just give me your fastest answer. Okay. All right, here we go. Favorite Disney movie? Lion King. Favorite non-Disney movie? Boondock Saints. <laughs> Favorite Marvel superhero? Ooh, that one's a tough one. Wolverine. Okay, favorite non-Marvel superhero? That would have to be Batman. Batman? Okay. Batman. Favorite cocktail? Old-fashioned. Old-fashioned, yeah. If you were a sea creature, what would you be? A sea creature? A sea uh, creature. I think that would have to be probably Great White. A Great White? Okay. Yeah. If you were that sea creature, how many hours of uh, sleep would you get a night? Well, probably not much. I don't think they sleep that much. I don't think they do either. No. Boxes or briefs? Briefs. Okay. How lame is Tony? Depends on the day. <laughs> no, I love him. He's a good guy. Yeah, but he's super lame. <laughs> uh, okay, well, that was all my questions. I'm glad that you uh, you were pretty fast about it. Okay, so we're watching Big Hero 6, and I know that this is one of your, your favorite Disney movies, right? It is. Yeah, and I the reason that I wanted to have you on for this one in particular is because you do kind of have a little bit of history with Marvel movies in particular, like, obviously, like, superhero shows and movies and things, but specifically Marvel movies. Can you tell me about that a little bit? Sure. Well, a lot of people may not know, but I've really loved Marvel most of my life. It really started with X-Men growing up. And even though they sadly aren't in the MCU, I really started watching the X-Men movies. And whenever we started seeing much more of the superhero franchise expanding with Iron Man and, sadly, the Incredible Hulk, um, <laughs> it was a very good thing for me because it allowed me to really enter this world that I have loved so much and see it in a different way of producing it and writing it. Yeah, absolutely. And like you and I do a lot of talking about Marvel in particular. This movie is very strange to Disney because it is the first crossover after Disney bought Marvel Studios. So this is a very unique movie. I, obviously, there's the Big Hero 6 comics, but when you look at how this movie is made, it feels different it than does, other Disney yes. movies. And for that matter, it feels different than Marvel movies. It does. It's much more It's much more innocent than the other Marvel movies, but it's much more intense than the other Disney movies. It sort of carves its own category out whenever you sort of 
range it with all the other Disney movies and Marvel movies alike. Yeah, and and I think that that really sets this one apart from both studios. I think that it, it's very unique and really a, a, just an amazing movie altogether. I, I really enjoyed watching this. For those of you listening, we literally just finished watching this movie like 20 minutes ago. We were watching it together, which is something that me and Tony don't have the luxury of doing when we're together because he lives in Texas and I live in North Carolina. So we, we kind of had a, a little bit of a, an easier time and we were able to collaborate a little bit more when it came to this movie because we had the opportunity to watch it together. So what we're going to do right now is I've got some really cool trivia, but first I want you to watch the movie because a lot of this cool trivia is kind of like weird things that you, you wouldn't be able to like point out unless you had seen the movie. And so go ahead and press pause and watch the movie and we'll be right back. So pause. Okay. So hopefully you just paused. If you didn't, then I know what you did and I'm watching you. And you're on my list. <laughs> For you those do of keep you, a list. yeah, I do keep a list. It's true. For those of you that did go pause and watch the movie, thank you. That is the best way to enjoy this podcast. So I've got some really cool trivia. First of all, this movie was came out in 2014, directed by Dan Hall and Chris Williams. So kudos to those guys. They did a really good job with this one, and it's set in the year 2032, which would mean that Hero was born in the year 2018. That's kind of troublesome for some people, so according to Scott Watanabe, the art director of this movie, it's set in an alternate future where after the 1906 earthquake, San Francisco was rebuilt by Japanese immigrants using techniques that allow movement and flexibility in a seismic event. After the city was finished being rebuilt, it was renamed San Francisco due to it being a city with Japanese and American architecture combined. And this was something that I thought was really funny because I don't think that it says anything at least and not until towards the end of the movie about it being called san francisco no it doesn't all you get is the very first scene of the movie with the sign that says welcome to san francisco yeah and if you're not even paying that close attention like i was <laughs> right away <laughs> i honestly thought it said a san francisco which i thought it was interesting that in the future the uh directors and writers had envisioned this highly influenced Japanese culture in San Francisco. And it wasn't until later in the movie that I realized that this was actually San Francisco. Yeah. Beardy, Beardy looked at me towards the end of the movie and was like, this looks like San Francisco in Tokyo. They should call it San Francisco. And I was like, that is the fucking name of the city. <laughs> uh, oh, by the way, children listening, this is an adult podcast. Go tell mommy or daddy that you're listening to it and that you shouldn't be. And they will hide you away and beat you mercilessly. Parents, please don't do that. Just, just swat them on the wrist, you know? T tell them that this is big boy words. So, anyway, Beardy didn't know <laughs> that it was called San Francisco, which I think is really funny that he just sort of guessed San Francisco, and it just happened that way. It's really funny to me, Beardy, that you didn't pick up on that. But you really can see this architecture thing, especially with the bridge. Yeah, the Golden Gate Bridge having the the flares on the arches. Yeah, um, that's like one of the big factors that I noticed. And then just all the building architecture looks very much like almost feudal Japan. Yeah, which I think is really cool. Like, I really like that the way Scott Watanabe did a great job with the art in this movie. It, it really is really... It's it's interesting to see this, this 
city in this way. And he had a great vision of, of how this would look with San Francisco with Japanese influences. And I think he really captured that, especially when you look at like, one of the things that I read about this movie is that they created thousands and thousands and thousands of signs to go in the city, like throughout the city, little holograms on the, the signs and things. And it, it's almost reminiscent of like Ghost in the Shell kind of thing. It, I think yeah. it's definitely one of the big influences. I, I would have to agree with that. It's I mean, the de- attention to detail that these directors and writers had when creating this is just absolutely amazing. Yeah, and I I think that it's it's crazy beautiful just in general. The architecture really is something to note. A couple more things for you. There's uh, a couple of funny really ones uh, actually. Baymax was modeled after uh, a baby with a full diaper. So like uh, <laughs> whenever you see Baymax walking, they studied and like took images of a baby walking with a full diaper and modeled Baymax's movement after that, which I think is really funny. So now go back and watch the scenes of Baymax running and you'll be in for a hilarious Yeah, time. I told Beardy that beforehand and he was he was laughing a lot. It was good. They, the producers of the movie, took footage of fire ants as inspiration for microbots. One of the really cool things I thought about the, the preparation for this movie is that the creators of this team invented the denizen factory program which is a program uh, a computer program that allowed them because there are so many scenes of like full san francisco and there are all these like thousands of just bystanders so they invented this it's called the denizen factory program so that they could have individualized faces for every single one of those background characters which is incredible it's impressive yeah like it really is an amazing program that i feel like is probably going to come back for other movies. I, yeah, this technology is pretty revolutionary. It's going to help people who are making movies. They're, it's going to cut down costs of trying to find extras, and it's just going to be much more interesting because yeah. you're not going to happen to see the same extras over and over throughout the entire movie. And I think even in like live-action movies, I think you're right. Exactly. And I think that's going to come into play. I think that's a really uh, an amazing thing that they did just for this movie. One of the other funny things that I found was that during the expo, right, just before Hero presents his thing, uh, we see like Cray walking around and um, like looking at other people's inventions and things. One of the inventions that he's looking at is the brainwave analyzer from by Doc Brown in Back to the Future. <laughs> and I think that that's hilarious that they're throwing in these like little bits of technology here and there. It, it's really, really funny to me. Hero's Room has a robot head on, on the desk, has a robot head next to his computer that is similar to the head of Eve from WALL-E. While designing Baymax's suit, we see a drawing of Iron Man's helmet. In Fred's library, This is a, there's a whole ton of stuff in Fred's library, but there is a statuette of Elastigirl from The Incredibles. There is a bunch of Power, Power Ranger masks. There are several just, like, B-list Marvel villains, like it, little statues of B-list Marvel villains, specifically Orca, Black Talon, which is the chicken-based one that we saw, and Torpedo, which were all uh, B-list Marvel villains, ex-Marvel villains. And then there was also a Cylon, 
or something resembling a Cylon, which we'll talk about because I, I want to talk about that a little bit. But tons of stuff in his in his little study, which was really cool to me. They threw in as many references as they could right there. Which I kind of have to imagine that, you know, as Stan Lee playing Fred's father, <laughs> it, I have to imagine that that's what Stan Lee's actual library is like. Yeah, most definitely. I like, And I can't help but imagine that there's those in particular, those exact ones in particular. Maybe not Elastigirl, but, you know. Yeah. <laughs> you have to imagine that he probably bought himself a Cylon at some point. In Hero's Room, the, the time that we see Hero fall on the ground when Baymax comes out of his little shell thing, we can see briefly on Hero's ceiling a poster of Oswald the Lucky Rabbit, which, for those of you that don't know, was Walt Disney's first character that came before Mickey Mouse. First animated character that came before Mickey Mouse, which is really cool. A uh, really nice little throwback there. You, For kids who may not know that from the cartoons, you can also find Oswald in the video game uh, Epic Mickey. Uh, he's a fairly big character in that video game. Yeah. And we're going to talk a little bit about video games, too, because there's there's a lot to talk about with that as well in this movie. So we're lucky to have Beardy on in general, because Beardy is more knowledgeable than me about video games and Marvel. So the the there are a couple other characters that were missing out of this team from the, the comics. So specifically, Silver Samurai and Sunfire were not in this movie, namely because they have stronger connections to the X-Men, and so they kind of couldn't do that but you will notice that in this movie Tadashi's hat has the logo SF on it with a, a like little Japanese symbol on it which could be a throwback to or at least some kind of reference to Sunfire which I'm not sure I haven't read the comics but I, I don't know if Tadashi was supposed to live in the comics and become Sunfire I don't remember offhand either that's a, definitely an interesting note to put out there though yeah i mean and it's it's a cool little reference if nothing else hero mentions uh callahan's invention callahan cat cat well or cat mole spline cat mole rom spline is a mathematical construct in computer modeling and animation co-invented by pixar president ed Catmull. so that's a nice little nod to uh the president of pixar gogo one of the members of the Big Hero 6, is the first ever Korean character in Disney, which is really cool. That is. Like, <laughs> especially for it to be such a prominent movie as Big Hero 6. Well, and, like, we, we have a very diverse cast. Like, we really do. And so, looking... This is one of the first Disney movies that has been almost entirely minority-based. And it is partially, like, obviously we've got the, the whole, like, alternate reality thing where it's a, a lot more, like, Asian influences, Japanese influences, and that could be part of it, I think. It's definitely true. But even still, the fact that we have this diverse cast is a very interesting turn that Disney has decided to make with this movie. Yeah, and I, I commend them for it. It was a really great movie, and it worked out. We'll get to cast in just a second, but... Another really cool thing, speaking of cast, is we do have uh, James Cromwell in this movie who played Callahan, and Alan Tudyk in this movie who played Cray. 
So for those of you listeners that have been listening to the last few, Alan Tudyk had a slew of movies recently in Disney, Frozen, Zootopia, Moana. Like he's been on a roll in Disney for the last couple of films. So hats off to Alan Tudyk. Gotta love the guy. But specifically, these two in the movie iRobot came out in 2004. James Cromwell played Dr. Alfred Lanning, the creator of the iRobot. And Alan Tudyk played Sonny, the robot. In this movie, Cromwell, ten years later, Cromwell played Dr. Callahan, and he's rivaled by Cray, who is Alan Tudyk. So that's like an interesting little thing that the two of them have going for each other. Yeah, they definitely, the chemistry between them works very it, well. Yeah, it, it's out of this world, these two, two actors anyway. Like, James Cromwell, gotta love the guy. And Alan Tudyk. One of my favorite actors, yeah. Can't go wrong with him. Yeah, like, really. Lastly, I have a neat little note, is on the police desk, in the police station, on the desk, there is a picture, in a picture frame, of a woman who is the same woman as the woman from the Dog Pound in the movie Bolt. So that's a nice little tidbit. I'm not sure if they were going for something there, or, like, what the deal was, but I thought it was pretty cool. Real fast, we got a really cool cast, like we said. T.J. Miller played Fred. Uh, T.J. Miller, for those of you that don't know the the face, is the uh, sidekick comedian that was in uh, Deadpool. Ryan Potter played Hero. Jamie Chung played Go-Go. You may know Jamie Chung from a ton of things. She was She's a very prominent actress, uh, Asian actress, and gotta love Jamie Chung. Genesis Rodriguez played Honey Lemon who was uh, the the one that, like, threw the balls and things. The, the chemistry nerd. Yeah, the chemistry nerd. Damon Wayans Jr. played Wasabi. You'll know him from New Girl uh, as coach, if any of you watch New Girl. Maya Rudolph from SNL played Aunt Cass. Daniel Henney played Dadashi. Alan Tudyk played Cray. James Cromwell played Callahan. And Scott Adsit played Baymax. So, uh, really great cast in this movie, just all around. It was... Um, and a lot of, like, comedy-centric people, though, I noticed. Yes. It was a very all-star cast for this movie. Yeah. And they really just played really well off of each other throughout the entire thing. Yeah. So, let's start out with themes. What uh, I, I've got a couple of themes that I picked up, but did you pick up any major themes of this movie? I mean, definitely the fact that robotics are, is what the creators of this movie seem to be the wave of the future. And even... In our world today, that seems to be the major trend in uh, computers, robotics. I mean, it's all going to be what's going to be driving our workforce 10, 20, 30 years down the line. Right. Any other ones that you picked up, or mainly just robotics? Also, just the Japanese influence throughout the entire movie. Yeah, and I feel like that's something we're going to keep referring back to, is that Japanese aspect. A couple that I picked up, I already mentioned one, is video game culture. This is one that you and I are going to talk about uh, a little bit later on, but one that I, I think is really interesting, and it, it's sort of along the same lines that we see, like, technology moving forward, robotics moving forward, but at the same time, the present generation is very video game-centric. Like, it, it, it is. The, the, the generation that is up and coming has been exposed to video games their entire life versus maybe you or I, that we were exposed to, like, Sega Genesis or Nintendo 64. GameCube. GameCube. Like, the, this this progression of video games to the point where it is right now 
And I don't know, it's it's an interesting thought that, like, we see this futuristic side of things and gaming, quote-unquote, because we see Hero and this bot fighting with what is essentially video game controllers. Yes. And so, do you, do you think that that says anything? Like, what, what do you get out of that? I mean, I definitely feel like a sort of a natural convergence of you have we're starting to see virtual reality we're starting to see all of these new and fancy technologies in video game consoles coming out and all the stuff that the new controllers can do i mean my even just my mouse has 24 buttons on it (laughs) it's going it's one of those things where the more buttons we have it the more we feel like we can do and so i feel like it's a very natural progression that if we're going to be having these robots, the best way to be able to use the robots is going to have something to do with the controller. Right. It's what feels natural to all of them. Yeah. I, I think you're right. I think that it's really, in this movie in particular, I think that we've got this really cool insight into possible future. Obviously not the same future, but possible future where we see this video game dynamic kind of take over. And it doesn't seem like a forerunner in the culture, though. It just seems like something that is inherent, something that is just there. And we we understand it to be there, but don't really pay any mind to it. Exactly. And so I think that's kind of the direction we're going as a society, which is cool. Like, I think, and like you said, virtual reality, these really amazing advances in technology that involve video games. Yeah, and I don't know how many people have ever actually tried virtual reality. I I feel like the more people who listen to this the more we'll actually get some people who (laughs) have played it but just a few weeks ago i had played uh in a virtual reality arcade it was an arcade in the mall that was designed nothing but for virtual reality gaming and you have this headset and actual controllers that you're playing with so even in virtual reality they have these controllers still i think is going to be prominent throughout every sort of major technological advance that we see moving forward yeah And we're probably going to hit on this a little bit more a little bit later on. But one of the other things that I found really interesting in this movie in particular, it's something that we talked about in a previous episode. I don't remember which one in particular. But this movie is, again, unique to Disney because this is like the first one. And you mentioned that this one was a little bit darker than other Disney movies because of that Marvel side of things. But this is like the first one that we ever see where... The main character deals with a loss, and then we see him have to go through the five stages of grief. And I feel like the progression of this plot is largely about the progression of these five stages of grief. I would have to agree with you. I mean, it's so captivating. Uh, I know a lot of people uh, listening to this have probably had some bout with grief. I know I have. I know you have, Josh. But... The way that it's expressed on this big screen with Big Hero 6 is something that is almost a very powerful thing for me to watch because it's personifying what I felt for several years of my life. Yeah. And and obviously, like, the, the five stages of grief go at different rates for different people, and this feels like it's going very fast. But at the same time, I don't know if we're ever told how much time goes in between Tadashi's death and when he goes and 
finds Baymax, I, I feel like it's, it's not very long. I think we're told that it's been a few weeks. Yeah, just like several weeks, which is still a really fast grieving process. That's true, but at the same time, if you have that support system like Kiro has towards the end of the movie, being able to overcome that grief and having a larger purpose for you to work towards is going to be very helpful in overcoming that. Yeah, and just for the sake of our listeners and for me, because I can't remember all of them offhand, what are the five stages of grief? And and like for those of you listening, really like think about the stages of Hero after Tadashi's death. And, like, the the progression of this plot line. And think about how these five stages, like, affect the, the drive of this plot. So, what are they? Uh, the first one is denial. Yep. And that is followed by anger, to which it moves into bargaining, depression, and then finally acceptance. Uh, which, the denial, we can attribute to the several weeks after his brother's death that Hero is just curled up in his room not doing anything yeah just hiding away not not wanting to deal with it anger is one that we most definitely see right off the bat especially whenever he goes and chases down baymax after baymax is following the magnetic pull of the microbot and he sees that his invention has been stolen there's this flash of anger that we see in hero that proves that he's gone past the stage of denial and has entered into the second stage of grief yeah and yeah, and he seems to take it out on Baymax, even though he knows that Baymax isn't responsible or is that there's nothing that Baymax can do at this point. And then we see bargaining, which I think is is kind of like a harder thing to see. But specifically, I think we see it in this movie when he starts to to find ways with his friends to to help him out and find like a, a solution to the problem by like upgrading them, essentially. I also feel like the bargaining also comes when he's finally coming face-to-face with Callahan for the first time. And he's there's sort of this moment of like, why did you do this? Why did you do this to me? And it, he then turns to Baymax and says, you need to do this for me in order to make me feel better. He's using Baymax's programming of trying to make people feel better in order to justify him trying to get Baymax to kill Callahan. Yeah. And so he, he's, in a sense, bargaining with himself. Like, he, he's like, here's what I have to say to justify what I want. Yes. And then we fall into depression, which is his, it, like, his friends disagree with him, essentially. They, they tell him, that's not cool, you can't do that. He flies off, abandons them, and is, like, still kind of angry, but in a in a more sad way, I think. Yeah, and especially the scene after they go back to the warehouse that Hero had been doing all of this upgrading, and you see Baymax show him the videos of his brother, and just Hero's finally breaking down and having this almost cathartic crying episode where he just needs to finally let it out. It's his, his actual release where he's moving from the depression stage into acceptance. Yeah, and I th- I feel like that is one of the faster transitions for him that we we kind of like skim over depression a little bit, but really hit hard into to acceptance when his friends come back. And I think you're right. Like anybody that has troubles out there, it definitely helps when you've got friends by your side. Anyone that has good friends can attest to this. So that that's my major themes, and like I I think that the other one that I I 
don't really think is a theme, but just an interesting point. And this is where I want to start getting into the plot a little bit, like the, the breakdown of how, how the story went a little bit. But we see Tadashi, right? Like Tadashi is personifying a, a larger-than-life character. He, I mean, he, he's the big brother, he is the protector, and he's this really smart character that... He's like, also the yeah. role model for Hero. Yeah, but like, and not necessarily at the beginning, though. Like, Hero, I think at the beginning of this movie, thought that he was better than everybody else. And because, I, to be fair, he graduated high school when he was like 13, so like, he's a smart kid, and he's hustling, he's like, and I thought it was a really funny line, he's like, gambling on bot fighting is illegal, but it is oh so lucrative, and like, he <laughs> flips the money in his hand, and uh, I thought that was really funny, but like, he seems a little obnoxious at the beginning of this movie. Yeah, I I can, I definitely agree with you there, but at the same time, like, the fact that he, for the most part, is, he's still very respectful towards his brother. Yeah, and, and I think that may be part of that Japanese influence as well. Very true. I mean, throughout the entire movie, you can see them bowing to who they feel it deserves their respect. Yeah. Um, but even still, like, when it's we get to the part where Tadashi brings Hiro to the lab, and Hiro gets to see everything that Tadashi's been doing, like, for me, that's really where Tadashi's role model aspect comes into play. Yeah. Um, seeing that you know, Tadashi has been working this hard on a robot that's going to be able to help people in any sort of crisis. And I feel like his brother was a big driving force in him learning how to do, or learning how to perfect the uh, microbots. Yes, and I think that it's, it's an interesting dynamic, these two characters. Namely because I feel like Tadashi, obviously he's older and more mature, but at the same time, he it feels like he's more competitive, maybe because he's he knows he's not as smart as his little brother, and so he's like kind of competing in a way, but still has that moral compass. I think that Tadashi all around is just a really interesting character because he I I know he knows he's not as smart as as Hero. Well, yeah, I mean you figure he's several years older than Hero, and they're kind of at the same intellect at this point. Yeah. So the fact that Hero has, is so much younger. It only proves that by the time he gets to Tadashi's age, he's going to be massively brilliant. Yeah. And I I don't know. I feel like maybe that was part of Hiro's skepticism of coming and seeing his projects. Like Hiro was like, I don't I don't need these things, I don't need to I don't need to be a part of this, I can make my own things. But when he finally sees this like collection of people that are all doing amazing creations in science, with the exclusion of Fred, we're gonna talk about Fred to extent <laughs> because fred is my favorite character in this movie so hold off on fred a little bit but these amazing scientists they're all pretty young and they're doing these incredible works of science and i think when hero sees this he's like i i can be a part of this i should be a part of this because i have because with great mind power comes great responsibility <laughs> my spider-man reference yeah homecoming uh, came out this past weekend go see it I'm allowed to say that because Marvel is owned by Disney. So. Hooray. Yeah. What I also think is interesting about that scene is sort of the, it, it sort of is the humbling aspect of Hero where he sees that, yes, he's a genius at the age of like 15, 16, however old yeah. he is in the movie. And, but even still, he 
comes into this lab and sees that there's so many people who are doing things that he wouldn't have thought of. Yeah. Like the slicing of the apple with the plasma. The laser, yeah. And the, the magnetic bike. He's seeing all these things and realizing that for the first time, I, in my opinion, that there are things out there that he still has to learn. And yeah. Oh, and I think that the other side of that is that he's seeing these these people that work with Tadashi kind of like and and the I think the reason in particular that he he sees these and he's like I wouldn't have thought of these is because we see these other characters kind of working on science that fits their personalities. Oh, very much. So. Um and that's something that we see with their superhero sides as well like we know that Wasabi, for example, is very clean-cut, as it were. He, he's very much the stand-up guy, the one that wants everything to be in a particular place, follow the rules, and his power, his plasma laser in the lab, are all very much precision-based. Very much so, yes. Gogo, for example. Speed. She likes being able to zip everywhere as fast as she can. And with the magnetic bike, even in the beginning, she says... You know, this is the way in order to be able to get the fastest bike with the least amount of resistance. And in her superhero outfit, she has four different wheels that she can utilize, one on each limb of her body. Yeah. And uh, for that matter, we look at Honey Lemon, who is very much like the the nerdier side of things, but also like the, the happy-go-lucky like nerd girl, I guess. Like We all know somebody that's like Honey Lemon. But she she's got this little table of the the chemistry table periodic, periodic table, table. yeah and like on her on her little purse that she makes it's got a little quote unquote periodic table and it's adorable and it's like pink she she rolls this big thing out and it turns pink and blows up in smoke and it's cute and I mean even in her superhero outfit like all of the globes that she throws are all these pastel happy colors that are always coming out of her bag. There's never any sort of harsh colors or anything like that. But that fits her happy personality. Yes. And then we come to Fred. <laughs> uh, I think all of us wish we had a bit of Fred in us. Well, I think that a, a couple of us do have um, a lot of Fred in us. Uh, yeah, you know, Fred in this movie is... is I mean, he is the, the comic relief. And... Even though we have a lot of comedians in the cast, he is very much the comic relief of this movie. And those of you that may not know, uh, that's TJ. TJ Miller. TJ Miller. He is kind of an improv comedian. He does a lot of things uh, on the spot that can contribute to the story or like can be funny one-liners or whatever. And I loved his his lines in this movie. Like all the, the great, like, I'm a science enthusiast. By day, I'm a I'm the school mascot. By night, I'm the school mascot. The the whole like thing with uh, he he's just he's full of great ideas. Like the invisible sandwich, I thought was a great idea. I think that's an amazing <laughs> idea. That you're sitting in a park or like in a I, I don't know in a library or something, and somebody just sees you like with your hands in front of your mouth, just chomping on something. <laughs> like the the they're gonna think you're crazy, but you're enjoying a, a mouthful of invisible sandwich. It's true, and I think one of the best things about Fred is the fact that within this group, there he's the one that sort of gives them the ideas in order to make things 
to make their idea their invention spark. Yeah. He's the one who sits there, spurts off these incredibly insane ideas, things that, as Honey Lemon mentions, is not science. <laughs> but at the same time, that's where a lot of great inventions have come from is all right, you get these people who have these things that they want that seem completely far-fetched and somebody in a lab somewhere figures out how to do it yeah and i frankly i I think that the whole plasma thing with these lasers was a heart a harebrained idea and at some point wasabi maybe figured it out and was like this is not a harebrained idea anymore this is science yes and i think that that's one of the interesting things about science is that things are all crazy until you can do it (laughs) and it, it sort of goes back for me, anyway, to um, the famous saying of advanced technology to one species can look like magic to another. Yeah. And I feel like in Fred's mind, he's seeing all of these things and it's almost magic to him. But at the same time, he's been around these people for long enough that he wants to he's spouting off all of these magical ideas and hoping that at some point they become reality. And in a way, it actually happens. Because in the beginning, whenever he first meets Hero, he mentions that he's been trying to get Honey Lemon to turn him into this fire-breathing reptile. <laughs> and she's like, well, that's not science. Well, in whenever Hero does all of the upgrades, that's kind of what he turns Fred right into. into. Yeah. And I think you're right. And I I just love, gotta love Fred. And he re- he is the point of inspiration of the group. He, he's like the the idea guy. For every group of inventors, there has to be an idea guy. And he may not be the smartest guy, but I think he's smarter than he lets on, to be honest with you. I do, too. I think he really plays up the dumb factor. But for him, it's almost like he you would much rather come up with the ideas than try and apply himself in order to to make those ideas happen. And he's sort of like a kid in a candy shop. He's He knows that all of these things things are essentially the same type of structure they're candy they're sugar but at the same time he's in awe and wonder of the new things that uh creators or candy makers have been able to do with it um yeah and i feel like that's sort of his role in this movie is he's the kid and the candy shop is the lap yeah yeah i think that's a pretty interesting way to put it so we, we've talked about these other characters of the lab and how they've kind of put themselves into their inventions. So back to Tadashi, what is what does Baymax say about Tadashi's character? Well, I think it says that he cares very much about the people around him. Um, even in whenever he gets uh, Hero into the lab and starts introducing everybody, he seems to sort of be, I guess, big brother to all of them. And even still, like, he's been taking care of Hiro, even with their aunt taking him in. He's sort of been taking care of Hiro ever since their parents died. And so he has this role of healer, protector built into him, and he applied that into his science to create Baymax. Yeah, and speaking of Aunt Cass, uh, Maya Rudolph, I love her character so much, and she, she, like... She picks them up from the prison, and she's like, all of this on Beat Poetry Night. How dare you mess up Beat Poetry Night? And then she's, like, stress-eating with donuts, and she's like, this is your fault. Uh, 
and then we got the fat cat, the the uh, fuzzy oh, baby. I I think it's hilarious. I think she's a great character in this movie, and and even like the subtle things, like when she says we're gonna make some super hot hot wings, and then she's like, oh, this is gonna be painful tomorrow. <laughs> like, I mean, it is. <laughs> the other question I was gonna ask, speaking of being painful tomorrow, because we're talking about fiery shits with an invisible sandwich. <laughs> okay. Are are the shits invisible too? I guess that would depend on the science. Is it actually making the sandwich invisible? Or is it or some is, kind of, like, enzyme or something? I don't know. Or is know. it, like, cloaking? Or yeah. is it, like, some sort of sauce you put on the sandwich that turns it invisible? I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. I I think you're the only person who have ever thought of that. <laughs> and the last question about shit. This is the last one. Baymax pulls a lollipop out of somewhere. <laughs> yeah, that, that was my biggest question. Like, I, as soon as he gets done with uh, Hero for the first time... He's like, you've been a good boy, pats him on the head, and then pulls out a lollipop. And so I turned to Josh at that moment of the movie, I was just like, where the hell does he get a lollipop? Like, is it is there a stash of them on the desk that we don't see? Does he pull it out of his ass? Like, I, I'm very confused about this. Yeah, and I, I was hoping that we would resolve it, but we didn't get to resolve it. And, like, who knows? Like, really, it could be coming out of his ass, it could be coming out of his hands. I would like to think of it in that little chest plate that is his chips are in, the Tadashi chip is in, and, like, it pops out of there, and, like, if one of them gets stuck, it just gets all sticky, and, like, Hiro takes out one of the chips, and he's like, why is this sticky? I, like, <laughs> it, it's just a little thing, but I feel like that would have been really funny. Yeah, uh, I, 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 would, I would hope that eventually we might get uh, <laughs> an answer to that, even if it's sort of a, a question to the directors about it. At a panel at Comic Con or something. <laughs> Where the hell did the lollipops come from? It's been plaguing me for three and a half years. <laughs> Where did they come from? So there's a that darn cat reference about the the cat when he comes home with uh, drunk Baymax. Can we just pause for a moment and say, drunk Baymax is definitely a friend of yours that <laughs> everybody knows a drunk Baymax. Yeah, most definitely. He's like, Shh, sh- <laughs> we jumped out a window, <laughs> and then like tried to go up the stairs and the face flaming <laughs> on the very first step. <laughs> to me, like it, and then for me, it makes it even funnier because the the um, line that goes between his two eyes, I like to imagine it's <laughs> his mouth. And so whenever his eyes sort of are the are droopy and almost smiling, you get to see this like really happy looking Baymax <laughs> drunk <laughs> off his ass trying to get up the stairs. Yeah. And like everybody knows that drunk Baymax friend. And if you've got a cat in your house, you're fucked because drunk Baymax friend is gonna sit Fuzzy down baby and <laughs> and never leave. <laughs> Yeah, Drunk Baymax was funny for me, but there's a That Darn Cat reference in the movie at that point. For those of you that don't know, That Darn Cat is uh, one of Tony's favorite Disney movies. It's a live-action movie. It's it's okay, I guess. Uh, I, I never got a chance to see that one. It's uh, it's okay. That's Tony, I'm sorry that I'm, I'm saying this on the podcast, but That Darn Cat isn't, isn't one of my favorites. Sorry. So... What comes next? Uh, Gogo is what's next. And, again, being the first Korean character, she is a badass. Very oh much my so. god. Oh gosh. She she reminds me of a Korean version of Fast and the Furious. 
she is a badass. And, like, especially, not, not just in the fact that she's, like, this awesome driver and this awesome, like, need-for-speed character, but also because she's a very powerful female character. Yeah, I think that's very uh, obvious with her catchphrase of woman on. Yeah. And I think that really speaks volumes to all of the female uh, audience that's seeing this movie that it's not just men who are these powerful characters in these superhero movies. She's a very powerful female character that's doing just as much if not more than all the other characters like really and and she really is probably the strongest person in this character this movie because like looking at the other characters none of them are really that like physically strong no like looking at i mean maybe wasabi Wasabi, but even then he doesn't really apply it you know he's he's very much we need to have a plan we we have to execute that plan perfectly and he's very timid uh with his strength whereas gogo is doesn't really seem to care she just sort of goes with the flow but at the same time she knows exactly what it is that she wants to do and doesn't yeah and and i i just love her character in this movie she she is the most powerful i think in this movie and and that's both personality wise and physically wise and i i really appreciate that about her especially because she is the first korean character that disney's ever done i feel like that that did justice i think I do too. The next note that I have is you gotta love fucking Heathcliff, man. Oh man, he puts, <laughs> he puts up with so much. Just the several scenes of him wearing the mask and having these kids try out all of these new inventions on him, <laughs> and all the while he's not even phased by it. Like he's drinking a cup of coffee, he's cutting up a scone, and you just have to figure like, what did Fred do as a child? That made him just not care about being used as a human test dummy. He broke Heathcliff as a kid. You know that he did. Like, poor Heathcliff. And he, like, he sees it, too. Like, he, as Fred's walking in, and he's like, Hello, Miss Master Fred. And Fred's like, What up, Heathcliff? <laughs> and then he, like, automatically, almost instinctively, just puts out his fist for a fist bump. Yep. And Baymax at the end. <laughs> and Heathcliff is, like, not really phased by it. I, I love Heathcliff, man. Heathcliff is fucking hilarious to me. Which is really great because he really only has, like, one line. Yeah, he doesn't say basically anything in the entire movie. He says that one line and that's it. But he's so funny. Like, he, he's just <laughs> not phased by a damn thing. I, I really, I hate to think about what he went through with young Fred. Gosh. I mean, <laughs> you've got to think. With how crazy and hyper he is now, just imagine that all packed into a small six-year-old body nope. that doesn't care about the rules and what is socially acceptable uh, as far as what human beings can do to other human beings. Yeah. So next we have Rocket Fist make Freddy so happy! <laughs> I, I rolled out of my seat practically. This... I laughed so hard when he said that. I, I would like to think that that's one of his ad-libbed lines. <laughs> where, he, where he just said it, just being like completely ridiculous and random. And the directors are like, yes. <laughs> that is Fred to a T. Yes. The next thing that we noticed, at least, and it, it we hadn't really like seen it before in the movie. Like maybe just a little bit in the backgrounds, but we really saw it 
at this point was in the flying scene. We got to see these, like, wind turbines, I guess, in the air, tethered by these long metallic tubes up into the sky. And, and they almost look like jet engines. Yeah. That have been with, turned like, into... designs, like, Japanese designs on them and things. Yeah, and it looks like they got turned into, uh, like you said, wind turbines to produce energy. Um, my biggest question with that is, how do they keep them in the air? Because it doesn't look like those metal cables are going to be strong enough to hold that thing up. Yeah, and I don't know if they're, like, blimp technology, but... It doesn't seem that it would make sense because they're, they're heavy metal things. And even then, like if you were to go with it as the blimp technology, where's the blimp at? Because it is it's pretty much a very compact structure where it's just a metal ring with a turbine in it. Yeah, they look like balloons to me, yeah. but with, made out of metal, essentially. Yeah, I, I don't know. But if it is what it is, like if we if it is what we think it is, that it's these wind-powered energy sources, that's really cool to me. Alternate energy researchers, get on this. Like, yeah, and paint them with cool little cats and sushi and things, because that's awesome. Yeah, it really <laughs> is. <laughs> so that's a neat little thing that they, they put in there. The other thing that I have, I don't actually have anything until the very end. Do you have anything in between? Um, I guess my biggest thing is, well, first off, uh, at the very beginning, when after the explosion at the expo i mean hero is this genius right who created these microbots oh this is your plot hole yeah. yeah so this is this is the big plot hole for me and that is when hero finds that his microbots are being mass produced he originally thinks those are my microbots but wait they were destroyed in the fire but at the same time he was the creator of the microbots he's a genius so he would know that the microbots would be able to withstand the temperature of the fire. Why did that never occur to him? I mean, you're right. It's a, it's a weird plot hole that, like, and it seemed like basically maybe it's a it's when they're compacted together like they were that they can withstand it. I don't know because, like, honestly, as soon as Callahan put it on and created an orb of of microbots around himself, he was fine. Yes, and. I guess maybe he just thought they were destroyed because they weren't there whenever they went through all of the d damage and debris from the fire. But even then, like, you would at least find a few of them, or you would be suspicious that they were taken because you know what the material's made of. Yeah. I mean, you're right. He, he should have known that that fire probably wasn't hot enough to destroy it. But I also think that he probably was a little bit preoccupied. His mind was wandering at that point, so... I mean, I get it. <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I, I definitely understand. It, to me, I just feel like, even at the point where he's telling his friends, uh, whenever they are first like, hey, isn't that your microbots? What is he doing with your microbots? Hero's like, I don't know, they were all destroyed in the fire. Like, I feel like at that point it would have clicked, like, wait a minute, my microbots wouldn't have been destroyed in the fire. Like, yeah. So like, it's even weeks later, after he's sort of gone past the stage of denial in, the, in his uh, grief stages. And it's, to me, like, I feel even though he is distracted, at some point he would have realized those are probably my microbots, or at least uh, variations of my microbots, because of the fact that they survived. Yeah. It, I mean, it is an interesting plot hole. Answer our questions, Disney. 
<laughs> Please do. <laughs> uh, that and where does Baymax get the lollipops? Get on that for us. Please. Um, you can email. We'll, we'll get we'll get information at the end. Don't worry. We'll get there. <laughs> what else do you got? Um, one thing that I noticed that I found really funny is when Hero goes with Baymax to the police station, which, by the way, is just a funny scene with Baymax and the tape. Um, <laughs> but it also is very interesting to me because I, the character of the police officer, who's this very, I'm going to do things at my own speed, seems very solemn the entire time doesn't really want to be there to me that's very reminiscent of uh how they created the sloths in zootopia yeah flash and to me i wonder if maybe they sort of got the inspiration for that from that police officer in big hero six yeah i don't know like i i think that you're Maybe right that they got that from that. I'm not sure, to be and honest with you. At the same time, it could just be that in Zootopia, they thought it would be really funny to have a sloth named Flash. Yeah. So. That might have been just the, the entire reason. I don't know. Yeah. Just a fun little observation. <laughs> and then finally, before we get to the very end, the big thing, I mean, the other big thing for me is just trying to figure out what exactly Tadashi would say to Hiro. If he saw what Hero did in taking out the Tadashi chip from from Baymax, huh? And because like we all see what his friends say about it afterwards and how this isn't what Tadashi would have wanted. Yeah. But at the same time, I want to know exactly how he would have responded. Like, would he have gotten angry? Would he have been disappointed? I mean, I definitely feel like it would be a mixture of the two. Yeah. Um, but at the same time, I almost feel like Tadashi wouldn't have let things get that far like i don't think he would have let hero turn baymax into this superhero or weapon that you see whenever he first confronts Kali. i think you're right and this is this is the last big theme that i want to talk about is kind of like and it goes back to more than just baymax it goes back to the microbots it goes back to a lot of things but like the original creation for both Baymax and the Microbots were intended to help better the world, right? And so, like, I don't think that Tadashi even realized that Baymax could be capable of such things in the same way that I don't think that Hiro, when he was creating these Microbots, realized the destruction that they could wreak. Yeah, and I would agree with that. It's very interesting to me to think about the fact that, one, I feel Tadashi would be horrified in how uh, Baymax was being um, used, but at the same time, in almost awe of how Hero was able to take his creation and sort of further develop it. Um, Not necessarily what he developed it into, but just the fact that he was able to expand on the original programming. Yeah, and I think that says a lot about technology in general, that like the original product may be made in a way for a specific purpose, like an innocence not not intended to be used for weaponry, for example, but things can get corrupted as technology advances. So I guess the question I want to ask you, and me and you have talked a little bit about this and you've got some cool insights about it, but like we see this fine line, even in current technology, this fine line in technological ethics. And we see in this movie in particular the line get crossed 
a number of different times. So how do you justify technological advancement in our society when we know that this line is so thin, that you're walking such a very, very thin line? And like even even with the Cylons, that we, we saw this little Cylon statue in Fred's house as kind of a throwback to that side of things. Cylons, of course, for those of you that don't know, is from Battlestar Galactica, a show essentially about this same issue, that technology, we created Cylons to help make things easier for humanity, and then they revolted. So how, how do you justify that, Beardy? Well, so right now in, in the world, they're currently going through and trying to figure out ethics of revolving robots. And they've sort of talked about sort of how, whether or not, if, say, a self-driving car, if a self-driving car happens to mess up the computer fries in it, or it just makes a miscalculation even that results in human loss of life. Who is responsible? Is it the car's fault for making that miscalculation, or is it the programmer's fault? And the reason why this is so important is, say, there happens to be a defect in the code for these self-driving machines that nobody catches, and you get this string of fatalities because of this one line of code. Well, is it the car's fault for executing its programming correctly, or is it the programmer's fault for programming it incorrectly? And if it's the programmer's fault for programming it incorrectly, is that programmer now supposed to be charged with multiple homicides? Or manslaughters, I guess, would be this case, as it wouldn't have been intentional. And these are the things that they're trying to hammer out right now, and have been trying to hammer out for years because this is such an important issue that still needs to be resolved before we really get into the world of these robots that help us in everyday life. I mean, your Roomba's not going to go around and start killing you unless you happen to tape a knife to it. In which case, <laughs> it's, really, it's really not the robot's fault. It's your fault for taping a knife to it. That right. one's obvious. So right now, the current limitation of robotics it's fairly easy to be able to say this is the human's fault or this is the robot's fault. Right. But as the technology advances, that line's going to get blurry. And that's why we have experts from multiple countries in the, that lead the field of robotics sitting at, down and trying to figure out these ethics. And also, not just that, but also what sort of rights do the robots have? And so I listened to this podcast recently called Will Robots Ever Get Married from How Stuff Works. And it's part of their Stuff You Should Know series. And they were saying that, you know, it may sound crazy that a robot would have rights, but at the same time, 60 years ago, people would think that it was crazy that animals had rights. So at some point there has to be this sort of definition of what is going to eventually be I mean, what is something that is not appropriate for trying to ask a robot to do and i think that's really going to outline sort of whenever these events come up of who's to blame they'll go back to this these civil rights uh, arguments that they're having right now about robotics and saying okay well is it obvious that it goes against the rights of the robot 
If yes, then it's going to be the creator's fault. If it doesn't go against the robotics right, robot's rights, then depending upon how the robot failed its task, that's whenever they need to start looking at, is it part of the coding that was wrong, or is it something that they decided to do, the robot decided to uh, perform incorrectly. And what's even more interesting is the fact that we have these scenarios that are starting to, that people are starting to pose that essentially what happens whenever we start telling robots to learn and gain knowledge, because that adds a sense of unpredictability to it that nobody's going to be able to account for in these vast codes amounts yeah. codes of ethics that they're creating. Yeah. I think, and I think this is an interesting question. Uh, I'm not really sure how to go about it, to be honest with you. Like it, it, it just feels like a really fine line to even talk about, you know, like why, why even risk it? What, what, what's the upside of risking it? Well, the upside is be to further our daily life. I mean, more than likely, you're not going to get your maid robot who's going to turn around and start killing you. Right. But the ones that we really need to worry about are robots that might be uh, going out and there's predictions that they might start replacing soldiers in wars. And they're essentially going to be these tools for death. And at what point do these tools of death become massively inappropriate to be used because of the fact that they can, if they deem the creator or somebody a threat, a, a threat yeah. who's to say they won't turn? Thus, we get stuff like Terminator. Yeah, and Cylons. And Cylons. <laughs> I mean, it's, these are major questions that still need to be raised and answered before we get to that point. Okay, so last question on the matter then. You, you mentioned that in these certain scenarios, we could hold the creator responsible or the robot responsible based on what happens, right? Correct. So I guess my question is, how do you hold a robot accountable? Like, it, wouldn't it just fall back to the creator? Because in, in that sense, if you're holding a robot accountable and all you do is just shut down the, the robot and the project, then people could just create robots willy-nilly, they have problems, and then have no repercussions. That's true. And some of it will, in the immediate future, will reside uh, on the creator. However, this is mainly more for whenever we get to the point of robots learning and potentially developing this artificial consciousness that they know that killing its master or killing its creator is bad, but they go through and do it anyway. And so for me, if we're going to have this point where robots could get shut down entirely, that's where people are going to start saying, okay, what about the robots' rights to be shut down? Yeah. And that also isn't really going to be an issue until we get to this artificial consciousness where robots realize that they could actually have rights. But that, again, is up for argument for for people who are much above my pay grade. Yeah. So that pretty much concludes the movie. I do want to say again, thank you to Beardy for being on with us. We appreciate it. And last little bit, you can find us on Facebook at Front Porch Disney. Make sure you comment there. We're excited to have you. And give us some Beardy love. We know you have it. Just sort of send out some Beardy love and we'll we'll make sure that he sees it and stuff. You can find us on Twitter. I'm at Front Porch Josh. You can find Tony there at Front Porch Tony. 
You can find us together at Front Porch Disney on Twitter as well. Comment, leave us some, some stuff there, and we will include you and your comments in the next episode. Lastly, follow us on iTunes, also at Front Porch Disney, and like and subscribe. Leave us a rating. That really helps out a lot. We won't do any paid advertising or anything, so all those reviews and ratings that you do really help out a lot. And please make sure you send Tony your best wishes as he is about to undergo this surgery and hope that he recovers soon so he can get back to doing what he loves. Yeah, and so that you don't have to do it anymore. <laughs> <laughs> so with that, thank you again, Beardy, and hopefully we'll have you on for another episode soon. Sounds uh, good. Yeah, I, I assume that this one went well. I guess we'll find out after I do some editing. But <laughs> regardless, I appreciate it, guys, and there's not really any songs in this movie, so I'm not going to sing this out, but thanks. <laughs>